Good evening, everybody. Bob asked me if I wouldn't say a few words, not only of greeting, but a few words about the old times, the old days in AA, before there was any Al-Anon. But first I want to tell you how thrilling it is again to be here. Each year seems to be better than the year before. And I hope you all have a very wonderful conference and accomplish a lot for the years and the AAs that will come in the future. As you know, AA started in Akron in 1935, but there wasn't any literature until 1939. So in all that time, the AA story had to be taken from one AA to another. It was passed on from by word of mouth. And so there was a lot of traveling about. Wherever there was a... Anybody had a car, it was a regular accepted fact that everybody would pile into the car that could possibly get there and go to a meeting. It didn't matter where the meeting was, whether it was in the next town or, or where. But it was a communistic spirit in the, in the real meaning of, of the communists. The sharing of everything you had with the other fellow. Those that had homes opened their homes to anybody that needed a, a place to sleep, anybody that was in AA or, or a prospect. So our house was continually full of drunks. We had them on the top floor, and we had them in the basement. And my father's house where we lived, he had been a doctor, and so we had them on what we call the office floor. And some of them stayed sober a while, for quite a long while, but a lot of them got drunk and did all kinds of Remarkable things. Very remarkable. <laughs> I remember one of them got a great big carving knife and began chasing another one all around them, all around the house, down cellar and up in the stairs, until a third man came around and grabbed the carving knife and <laughs> took it away from it. 
And then there was a little fat man that lived in the basement. And he did some quite interesting things. <laughs> he wanted to come in one time when he was drunk and I wouldn't let him in. And you know in those old houses they used to have a coal chute that went in from the street. And this fat man, I don't know how he ever got down the coal chute, but he he slid down the coal chute. But he was quite a cleanly place, and so um, he was always taking baths. And we had those old stationary tubs in the kitchen. And one time he got stuck. <laughs> and somebody had to go down and pull him out. And somebody happened to be me. <laughs> of course we had equally sad things happening one man committed suicide after he'd stolen a lot of our clothes I had an evening coat then never had one since <laughs> and he stole that and Bill had a dress suit and he stole that and took our one suitcase but it was a marvelous experience we learned a really a tremendous amount and we were one big family that was one of the things about the early days that the, um, the families were all part of this society of nameless drunks because it didn't have any name until the book came out I suppose they um, they got that idea of having it in the family from the Oxford group from which really AA in which AA had its roots really because that was a, a fellowship or a society, an organization for everybody and anybody. So when the um, AAs decided, or when the alcoholics within the Oxford group decided that they should work only with alcoholics because Oh, it was one alcoholic talking to another one that was effective. Somebody else telling them they should stop drinking didn't do any good. It was the identification, and they needed that. But all the alcoholics' families came along, too. In fact, we considered ourselves 
just as much part of the society as the drunks. <laughs> the mothers and the children, everybody used to go to these meetings. So now that we have really two fellowships, it isn't a bit strange, really, that we have fashioned our, that we families in Al-Anon have fashioned our society after AA because to me it's the most wonderful and beautiful fellowship with the highest most inspiring principles so I want to thank you all for showing us in Alanon the way. Thank you. I spoke earlier about the great responsibility of being here, the privilege, and the joy. And as all of you who have participated in this work know, it is a joy of a unique and singular quality. In this gathering, we see things never before seen in AAY. We hear the many voices of AA, and we see them blended into that harmony, which is now heard around the world. Thanks for the privilege while being with you, in which Lord joins with me. Thanks, folks. This morning, we thought it would be rather nice if we opened the meeting by asking Lois to tell us a little bit about early Al-Anon because so many of us weren't around when Al-Anon began and the real hard work was done with very few, if any, conveniences. And so I'm going to turn this over now to Lois. Good morning, everybody. Hi. Hi. As Patty said, we thought that maybe a little talk on the early days of Alamon might be interesting. So, as you all know, Alamon has its roots in AA. So, we really have to begin way back in the beginnings of AA to really get the background for Alamon. 
And what you don't know probably is that AA had its roots in the Oxford group, which is now called Moral Rearmament. And the Oxford group was an evangelical society to help everybody, help the world change for the better. And they had extremely high ideals. And um, they didn't ever stop at helping one particular class of person. They wanted to help everybody. <clears throat> and Ebby, who came to Bill with the Oxford Group message, <clears throat> belonged to that society. And so we went to the meetings. But it soon developed that alcoholics had problems that everybody didn't experience. They were, had something particularly unique. So they felt that, although in general these principles could be used, but the identification of one alcoholic with another was one of the main things that could help the alcoholic because people from all the alcoholics' lives had been talking down to them, telling them what they ought to do and ought to be, and this hadn't ever worked. But when another alcoholic with the same experience talked to them, they knew they understood this strange world that the alcoholic lives in. So the, I was going to say AAs, but the, they weren't AAs then. So this small bunch of alcoholics, which Bill had worked very hard to to help, decided that they'd better meet by them by themselves and not in the Oxford group, that they could be of more help to each other than just the general meetings uh, could do for them. So they did meet together, but the whole general idea of um, of having your wife go along and the family go along too, carried over. So we all met together and we families of early alcoholics, of alcoholics, <coughs> um, met with them and really we considered ourselves AAs. I mean we considered ourselves part of this group of people that have no name group of um, people who were trying to help themselves. So our meetings really contained the families and the children and the mothers and the friends sometimes of alcoholics. And by degrees as AA grew, it didn't have a name if you remember until 1939, and that was five years after Bill sobered up. 
So in that period, it was just a bunch of nameless drunks that had <laughs> no, no particular. And some of them thought they were still the Oxford group. In fact, out in um, Akron, they called themselves the Oxford group for years, even after the book was out, which gave the name to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, they called themselves the Oxford group for quite a long time in Akron, even after the, the book was out. But it didn't matter what name they went by. <laughs> they were practicing the same principles. So um, the idea of the families going along with the, with the alcoholic really had a very early start. And of course we tried to um, practice these principles but only in a rather superficial way because we most of the families that I only can speak from my own experience but I think most of them did too they felt as if they didn't need too much spiritual development they had been they'd gone through this ordeal and they felt that they knew practically all that life had to offer <laughs> and that <clears throat> they could handle their own affairs pretty well but by degrees the way I did we had experiences that showed we could not handle our own affairs and we saw our own mates growing spiritually and jumping way past us we'd always thought that we were a little bit further along the road than they were and we began to lag and so we in very spotily uh, through the groups and I'll tell you how they started in a minute um, began to recognize the fact that we had better do something about our own lives that we had better live by these same wonderful principles and as you've all read I'm sure and I've said so many times about my own experience about throwing a shoe at Bill when he said now let's get ready to go to a meeting that's what really woke me up. Why in the dickens was I throwing a shoe? I'm losing my temper at such a simple remark on his part. There must be something diametrically wrong with me. Well, <clears throat> in those five years before the book came out, there wasn't any means of communication between a between um, the groups of AAs and there were of course only well there were maybe five groups around this area there, there, um, there was one in um, one of the early ones in Greenwich Connecticut you know that Penny I suppose you did one of the early AA groups was Greenwich and East Orange uh, in Jersey and Pennsylvania Philadelphia 
and um, of course out in Akron and then in Cleveland and then in Washington those were really the um, the early groups for quite a, a number of years and they grew and, and branches of course evolved but the only um, the only way that the AA message could be spread was really by word of mouth. So we used to travel about. If anybody had a car, we'd hop in it and um, go to Jersey or go to Philadelphia or go to Akron. Many a time we've driven all night to get out to Akron, which is quite a little ride. And um, when, whenever um, we went, the AAs would often meet by the, themselves. And that idea had, had uh, sprung up um, during that period, too, that um, it was fine to have the families with them at open AA meetings. I'm going to say AA, although that wasn't the name of it then because it's so hard to say anything else um, that um, it was nice to have the families at open meetings but to really get down to business they had to have at least one closed meeting a week where they could get down to work on themselves so the AAs had those closed meetings and sometimes in fact, very often, we families of the early AAs would gather together, would meet. Sometimes we'd play bridge, sometimes we'd have a tea. And if we went to Washington, say, um, the wives would give a little tea for the coming visiting families. And um, we wives would always tell a little bit about how we had learned that we had to use the 12 steps of AA ourselves or else be left way behind by our husbands. Now, Anne Smith was one of the big rocks of, well, there are only one rock of Gibraltar, but the big, <laughs> the big, um, she, well, I can't think of any simile. Maybe somebody can suggest one. But um, she was really a tremendous personality. Bob Smith's wife. She was not well. She was old. <laughs> Even then, Bill was um, 15 years younger than Bob. Penny says, guiding light. That's good. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. <laughs> She was, um, as I say, Bob was 15 years older than Bill, and um, Annie was appropriately aged, and Annie wasn't well, and she was nearly blind, and she used to sit in a corner of their living room, a dark corner because the light hurt her eyes, and smoke one cigarette after another, continuously. But Penny's word, guiding light, was really um, most appropriate for 
Annie. She was a marvelous, marvelous person. And AAs and families would come out and talk to her and get advice from Annie, and she always seemed to be able to put her finger on the trouble and to help them. And as I say, she was a tremendous personality. And whenever she traveled, although she and Bob didn't travel anywhere near as much as Bill and I did, because, well, just because they couldn't get around as easily as we were so much younger and we could get off at a moment's notice. But she did a tremendous amount to help the families. And of course, soon after AA really um, took its name, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and had a book, that was the important thing, had literature that it could spread, that it could um, spread the message. And in 41, which is only, um, only two years after the book came out, a wonderful article was written in the Saturday Post by Jack Alexander about Alcoholics Anonymous, and that brought in hundreds and thousands of people, and it was just a tremendous growth. And also, with them all came their families, and many of them found little groups of the wives of alcoholics in various of the places where cities and towns where AA was established to which they could go to. Now these little groups, some of them were what we call coffee and cake groups. They were just AA auxiliaries. The wives went along and did what wives, what came naturally we say, <laughs> to wives. They made the coffee, they served the meals, and they had a clubhouse, they hung the curtains, and they did all that sort of thing. Not really, um, or maybe only a society issue meeting for any spiritual um, growth in themselves. And there were all kinds of different groups. And later, quite a lot later, in 51, 10 years that is after the book came out, after the um, Savvy Post article, in uh, 50, I guess it was, Bill traveled over the whole United States and Canada to see if he couldn't get the feeling about and inspire a feeling for starting a conference of delegates so that AA would be have its have its structural roots in the groups so the groups could send delegates to New York to keep an eye and to guide its services and in doing that he found quite a number of groups of families and wives of 
AAs. And when he came home, he thought that um, something better be done about these wives because he noticed how different they were in character and that they had no particular um, form or structure or even purpose, some of them. And that we ought to have in New York some kind of a central service here that just the way AA did where inquiring individuals and inquiring groups um, could um, write to for information on how to get a group started and that we should have our own steps and our own traditions and have a little bit of of um, plan and unity, principally unity, in the Al-Anon groups, that that unity would would be a force in itself that would be helpful. So another Anne, Anne Bingham, and I started a little office work. We've heard that AA had um, had had a number of people, wives and families, inquiring if they couldn't register at the AA office. Well, the AA office was only equipped for, to handle alcoholics. Didn't know what to do with families <laughs> of the alcoholics. So they had 87, and I, we couldn't believe that there were so many. So many different people had inquired some of them belonged to groups and some of them were just individuals. And uh, these 87 people had inquired at the AA office if they couldn't register their group. So Ann Bingham and I wrote to these 87 names and we got 50 answers, which is a pretty good proportion, and 50 registered. So. Al-Anon started, Al-Anon services started with the 50 groups and we corresponded with them and did all we could. But soon the, um, the growth and the interest got so great that we couldn't handle it up in our upstairs room, up at Stepping Stones. So we moved the office to New York to the AA clubhouse they offered us. The first clubhouse in the world was um, the old 24th Street Club, which was on 24th Street, on the west side. And um, at that clubhouse, um, very often we wives used to meet upstairs. And as I said before, sometimes we play bridge. And, but we began to have a little, have serious meetings there at that old clubhouse. So it was only a very, it was very appropriate place for us to open our office, which we did in 1951. And the Quite a few people here 
who were at that office on 24th Street. There's Margaret and Evelyn and Henrietta. Sue, I saw Sue first and I didn't. <laughs> she got hidden behind. And Sue. I think those were the four that, that, um, that are here today that started in that office and are still going strong after these, how many, 18? No, Wanda was there soon and, Ma and Mary came some. Wanda isn't here yet, no. But they were tremendously, tremendously dedicated and wonderful bunch of volunteers that came to that office. And I think Margaret ought to tell them, Margaret, get up and tell about the paper bags and things and the... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I'm right there. Oh. Well, Ted said when he was uh, president of the board that he worked with a set of penny pictures. And he looked directly at me as he said it. <laughs> and it's no wonder. There was a thrashing machine that came with this uh, offer of that second floor room. And I think Larry maybe in AA was the only one who could get it to type a letter. So that what we used to do was Lois would call for me out in Westchester and ride me and my typewriter in and Anne and her typewriter. And those really were the start of Alanon's office equipment. Lois used to save all of uh, Bill's shirt boards because we did have three pieces of literature. We had one wife's story, which is Lois's story of throwing the shoe. It's now been uh, revised a bit, but it's no better than it was in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> we had a short piece that I think it came out of a meeting in Cleveland and it, it sort of told about some families being there. It didn't really, as I remember, it make very much of, of a pitch for the Al-Anon program, but it did say that there was something, and at least it was another piece of paper to enclose. <laughs> and then we had aims and purposes, which I've always called purposes and suggestions. <laughs> but that was our literature in the very beginning, but you couldn't just stick it in an envelope or it wouldn't get there in proper shape. So that uh, Lois would bring in these short uh, shirt boards. We'd all save envelopes and use them over again if we could. And we'd then uh, bring in wrapping paper and string. And every once in a while, we'd run out of paper. And if that happened to be one of the days that Sue came in, she said, oh, don't worry, I'll get you some. Well, I've always wondered where she got it. <laughs> but like Alan, we'd take anything, especially then. Well, later when we grew to have real correspondence and we had much more uh, literature to ship, Evelyn was in charge of that division. 
and she used to take it to the post office, which was a terribly long, windy, cold block away. And she'd wheel it there in, in uh, a market cart. We certainly had no swank about the place. <laughs> and uh, I've always thought that uh, I attached a very appropriate name to it because it was up on the second floor and there was a slanting tin roof, maybe galvanized iron and whatnot. But anyhow, it was hotter than the hinges in the summer. And here we would sit. It was one big room, and there was no way to get cross ventilations. And I think we did have one sort of broken down fan. But you never knew whether the fan was going or not. It didn't really do any good. And we'd all sit there with our work out of ground <coughs> one day and said, Whoa, this is Lois's sweatshop. <laughs> <laughs> because in the beginning, it, it didn't take long to have. Al-Anon, really the most important thing. But in the beginning, it was Lois's personal charm and attraction and all of the things there which kept most of us just eager for that day that we went in. And of course, it always ended with Lois looking around and saying, well, we did a good day's work. And we certainly did do a good day's work and not little by little, but by leaps and bounds, we all got Alan on, which was the important thing. Thank you, Margaret. That was a great help. <laughs> but of course, this was only one day a week we first started working there. And then we had to work more and more, and then we had to get our own office. And then Henrietta was appointed the manager of our own office, and she has... Well, I don't know what we'd do with her. <laughs> if anything ever happened to Henrietta, I don't know what we'd do. Right on, Lois. <laughs> <laughs> because Henrietta has brought this, this wonderful service of ours ahead so well and so efficiently and so beautifully. And that brings us pretty nearly up to our conference. Of course, it was in 61 that we decided we had to have our own conference. We decided in 60, <laughs> and it met the first year in 61. And since then, I think you, you all know just about all that's happened. There's nothing so... There are plenty of important things, but nothing so colorful as the early days of Alamon. And I hope we always remember our early beginnings. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lois. From my observations, I certainly think the higher power has brought us a long, long way since those early days and given us much to be grateful for. 